Hey, big mood, little mood listeners, I want to remind you of all the cool things that happen when you sign up for a Slate Plus membership. You'll stop hearing ads on all Slate podcasts. You'll stop hearing me reading ads on my Slate podcasts. Think of how much better your life would be if you didn't have to hear that. I know mine would. You'll be supporting Big Mood, Little Mood, and all of Slate's shows. Slate Plus helps keep our shows going. You'll get to hear bonus episodes of this show, as well as all your other favorite Slate shows like Slow Burn, Amicus, and Political Gab Fest. And you'll have unlimited access to every article and advice column on Slate's website, never hitting the paywall, plus an additional question and answer from me each week. Support our show and Slate's journalism and sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash mood plus. That's slate.com slash mood plus. To Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Danny Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Danny Faith Leonard, a writer, comedian, and producer. Danny is known for creative storytelling, a fun vibe on set, and for always having a caffeinated beverage in her hand. Danny, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I do have a caffeinated beverage in my hand. <laughs> I'm very, very glad to hear it. Um, what would you say that cultivating a fun vibe on set is uh, like a rare gift? Is that something that you think is is often lost? I do, especially, you know, especially when I'm coming from the point of view of of being the producer. I think that it's it is something that that you can cultivate, but it has to be intentional. Otherwise, it's, you know, so much of producing is solving everyone else's problems in addition to solving your own problems that you have in that moment. And uh, and the fun can definitely get lost. Yeah, that sounds about right. I don't often <laughs> have, I, like, I don't often think of like, oh yeah, solution systems. What's the most fun one I can think of? Well, I'm excited then because it feels very straightforward and intuitive that you will be able to bring, if not the fun element, at least the problem-solving element of producing into uh, our questions today because these these letter writers they've got some some problems. Oh, they do. <laughs> they they do indeed. All right. Well, with with that said, I will I will begin uh, our our series by reading the first letter. If that's all right with you, great. And frankly, even if it isn't, because that's the format of the show, I would do it even if you object strenuously. It's your show. Yeah, yeah. I would just say sorry. <laughs> so the subject here is not a dick. My family has a name let's say Richard, that gets passed down to the first son on the paternal side. I got this name when I was born, but I recently came out as a trans girl and picked a name for myself. My parents didn't really even react too much to my coming out. They got so upset about the name change. My dad started yelling that there were no other boys in the family to take it and that I was destroying generations of tradition. I told him that there just weren't any boys in my generation. Then my mom started crying and my dad sent me to my room for upsetting my mom. I didn't want to upset anyone, but I can't use that name anymore. How do I make them understand I'm not trying to ruin any family traditions that the name just doesn't fit me? Mm. This is, I think, the first time I've gotten a letter from like a trans kid, a trans youth, since the sort of like public facing conversation about trans kids like really, really blew up. I mean, I say that, but it's been like blowing up nonstop for the last five years and also forever. So maybe that's kind of like a, a fake distinction. I just, I'm kind of aware, like reading this, I just felt like, oh God. And like on top of everything else, you know, the weight of society and like the legislative uh, arm of the government and the law is like looking at you and going after you. And you also have to deal with this. And I'm just really, really sorry. Yeah. I, can't imagine that. I mean, I I haven't personally been in that position. And the trans friends that I have in my circle transitioned as adults. So I can't imagine the added pressures that that this letter writer already has as just the pressures of being a kid uh, and being in your parents' house still um, and still being in a position where you can get sent to your room <laughs> on top of everything else. Yeah, yeah, and where any potential sources of external support 
might be less readily available uh, either because of like actual legislation or because of like increased perceived risk. So there's there's a lot of that at play, but I don't want to get too bogged down in the sort of like oppressive atmosphere of like it's really rough out there right now for trans youth. So much as I want to uh, try to answer these questions as specifically as as we can, I, I was struck by, um, and I don't know how familiar you are with this, but I think often this shows up in people's responses to transition, but it can show up in in almost any kind of coming out and in other experiences. Somebody will say or or try to give off the impression of my problem is not you coming out or transitioning it's this small aspect of it but that's also nest like this essential part of it that i want to really fixate on and that's my problem that i think to me it's really important to say if someone does that they are reacting to your coming out they are not being cool about your coming out like that is a lie. Does that feel true to you? Does that feel like I'm taking yes. it a little too far? When I when I read this letter, that was the first thing that came to mind for me is that, you know, potentially these could be parents who are, you know, trying to seem like they don't care, but but the fixation on this thing, it still feels like they're treating the coming out as some kind of loss to them. Uh, it's just being misplaced on this one thing. Yes. And, you know, there are plenty of people who will cheerfully tell you, I do object to your transition. It's not as if those people don't exist. But there are many, many, many people who might never actually, actually come out and say, yes, I object to your transition. Yes, I want to try to stop it. Um but who will then go on and do that very thing. They just won't admit it. And so I think you have to be, while I, I also want to encourage people to look for reasons to be reasonably optimistic where that's possible, um, I also think that it is more often the case that somebody that you are close to will never ever come out and say, I object to your transition, I hate it, I want to stop it. But they will dig in their heels and go absolutely nuts about one detail and you'll feel like you're losing your mind. And it's because they, they don't want you to transition. That's just what it is. And it's easier, I think, to figure out how to deal with that, how to work with it, how to work around it. If even if only to yourself, you can say, this is just, it's transphobic. They're doing this because they don't want me to transition. They don't want to admit that because they worry that that would make them seem transphobic, but they are being transphobic. I think, you know, especially the the, the next line is, you know, uh, your dad sent you to your room for upsetting your mother. Uh, you know, again, I, I can't really like litigate how or under what circumstances your parents decide to send you to your room. But I think it's pretty telling there that like when your father couldn't immediately get what he wanted from you by yelling at you. And demanding that you like carry on families of traditions, like you're the fucking Habsburgs or something, instead of just like, oh, my grandfather had the same name I had. Like, that's part of what's always so remarkable to me about the pettiness of things like families trying to cordon off somebody else's transition. It's just this idea of like, oh, the vast centuries and the weight of antiquity that stands behind us and our traditions. And it's like, it's just a couple guys named Carl. It's nothing. <laughs> it's nothing. There, there are so many ways to honor a family. Uh, there are so many ways to honor your family, if that's even something that you should care about, that have nothing to do with carrying on a name. And, um, you know, so many people change their name, but obviously it has a different weight to someone's transition than it has, you know, if I were to go and, and change my name. Which I did, actually. Yeah. My last name is not my real last name that I use professionally. And you know what? It did bother my family. But Did they live? Did anyone die or spontaneously combust? They lived. And I wasn't sent to my room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so letter writer, some of this might depend on, is this one of the first times that you're seeing your parents really like throw a toddler-style tantrum? Or have you seen really unreasonable behavior from them before? I don't know. Um, but I think one thing that's really clear, at least about how they handled this in the moment, was when they couldn't get what they wanted from you immediately, 
their next move was pretty irrational. It was go to your room. Your mother's upset. That's somehow your fault and you need to be punished for it. Um, Hopefully they don't do that kind of thing a lot. Hopefully this will be a story that a few years from now they will be able to feel pretty like chagrined about and say like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we did that. I I don't know. Um, I'll I'll just say that one potential uh, response that you can offer Um, since again, you don't have the option of like sending anyone to their room or responding in kind, like they've got more of the cards right now is to say, you know, mom and dad, I realized that conversation went pretty badly last time we talked. And I want you to know, like, I am committed to speaking to you respectfully and hearing you out. I can commit to that. I will do my best to abide by that, but I can't promise you that no one's feelings will ever get hurt. And I hope you know that that's not a standard I can hold myself to. Obviously, again, like in an ideal world, they would hear that and be sort of like moved by example to act more reasonably themselves. That does not always happen, but you can at least set that expectation um, and have that sort of clarity for yourself of, I've said out loud what I plan on committing to doing and made it clear that I don't expect that it's a reasonable goal for me to say, I will be able to behave in such a way that no one ever else gets sad or has a feeling about it. Um, But this is one of those moments where you kind of like, unfortunately, have to treat your parents like they are very small children who are throwing a tantrum and you can't, you know, shake them out of it uh, by yelling or by punishing them. Um, And you can't necessarily like just give them a beautiful laundry list of reasons why they should feel differently and hope that that works. Um, Like this is a tantrum in response to a loss of control, not like a rational conversation about feelings and complexities and and relationships. But you can at least, um, you know, try to redraw the boundaries of the conversation where the expectation is no longer nobody gets upset. So that said, you know, one of the risks you run with that sort of like, here's my very reasonable, rational counteroffer is like the danger of agreeing to I call it like agreeing to transition by committee or come out by committee where like people are like, I, you know, I don't care that you want to come out, even though I really, really do. I just don't want you to do X, Y, or Z aspects of it. Or I want to decide when you tell other relatives or you can't tell certain other relatives, or I want to make sure you don't tell anybody outside of the family circle or whatever. And again, I realize they have a lot more of the power in this situation, but, um, there are at least when it comes to making long-term plans, you have a right to do that in your own best interest and not by committee. Transition is not something that is done by like a team. You're not like Lincoln assembling a cabinet team of rivals who are like, oh, we all have strongly held opinions and really disagree with each other, but we're going to like get everybody in a room and like hash out an agreeable way forward that we can all sign off on. Like, that's not what transition is. That's not what queerness or transness is about. It's not about like a group of people crafting the least offensive version of transition they can think of. Um, it's it's your life. So I, I just want you to keep that in the back of your head as like part of their goal is going to be, we should be workshopping this transition. Uh, you should take our feelings more into consideration. Um, you should think about, you know, your grandmother or the years of tradition or whatever. And there may be times that you have to pay lip service to that until you get out of the house, but that is not a reasonable, loving, peaceful expectation for them to give you. And I'm sorry that they're behaving this way. So I I would say like with that all as a preamble, um, I wish we knew a little bit more about how long this letter writer expects to live at home. Um, but you know, I'll just assume she is between a year and several years away from that. Um, That that seems right-ish. So are your biggest goals for the medium-term future, um, I want my parents to start using a new name for me? Is it, I actually just wanted to tell them about it and I'm willing to kick that particular can down the road if they're not ready to think about it? but I want to be able to try using my new name with friends um, or uh, see if I can do so at school. Is it safe for me to do so at school? Is there like, you know, actively transphobic uh, legislation in my state that would make it um, 
difficult or impossible for supportive teachers or guidance counselors um, or peers at my school to facilitate uh, a social transition in any way. Um, I can't speak to that, but I would just say like, you know your own context best. Um, and so just think through what, what do I want right now? What do I need right now? Um, do you want to make sure that you can get access to your birth certificate and set aside some money so that you can change your own name legally when you turn 18 without getting your parents' permission ahead of time? Um, make sure that you have like a photocopy of your own social security card, of your own birth certificate, so that if you don't yet have your driver's license, when you go get your driver's license, you can either get it in your new name or if you're not able to legally change it without your parents' permission until you turn 18 – at least you'll have all the documents like ready and to ready to go so that when you do turn 18, you can change it all at once because it's a long process. There's so much for, for her to take into account, but I hope that um I hope that her parents can at least behave like adults moving forward and and not treat this like it's an emotional assault to them. Yeah, I do too. Um, and to that end, you know, letter writer, if you have any siblings, cousins, aunts or uncles, grandparents who you think might be supportive um, or helpful to you, you might consider reaching out to them. Maybe not right right now, but maybe in a few weeks, um, whenever feels possible. Um, and and asking for a little help, maybe to like run some interference on your behalf. Um, anybody who you think would, would be just like better than that. It doesn't have to be like, oh, I, cause not everybody's like, oh, I've got a great relative who will be awesome. But like anybody who you think would have a better reaction than yelling about years of hallowed family tradition and then shouting, go to your room, um, <laughs> might be able to, um, take them, walk them down from that ledge. And then, you know, again, you say, how do I make them understand? I'm not trying to ruin any family traditions. I, you know, that one just kills me. Cause it's like, man, that is such a, tiny, reasonable, small goal. Just like, I want you to know I'm not trying to like bring about the fall of the house of Usher. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to transition. Um, and you don't have a son. Like you just, that, you know, that was really like such a gentle, peaceful thing to say. It's just like, mom and dad, like, I'm sorry you're hurting, but like, there's just not a boy in this generation to take that name. Um, and their inability to countenance that for even a second i'm just really sorry i hope they can get a dog and give it that name you know i, I, <laughs> find, I, a, I find a solution i get it, that like i do want to have some patience for you know a parent who picked out a name and like had certain ideas wrapped around in it i'm just so like yeah. sad and angry that they reacted so badly that i'm just like no i don't i don't want you to get to run off any of those feelings you should just oh, feel you like, don't even get a dog yeah you, i hope you <laughs> never get a dog i hope every you know shelter turns you away forever no pets unless you don't want pets in which case i, I wouldn't want to inflict pets on the unwilling so i'll take that back anyways um i, I think as long as you limit yourself to saying my goal is i want to communicate this like effectively and respectfully, but I can't control when or how they decide to start listening to me with an open mind. Um, so I would just say when enough time has passed that you feel like they're no longer at that same exact level of activation to just say like, I know the conversation went bad last time. I want to stress again, I'm not saying anything with the intention of hurting or upsetting you. And by the way, letter writer, like I'm giving you a lot of scripts that's very like placating in part because you just you have to placate them when you live with them and and so I don't want to suggest that this is going to be the way you have to approach these conversations for the rest of your life but like some degree of diplomacy is called for when you are still like living under their roof I want you to understand that um, I'm not trying to take anything away from you I'm trying to share with you information about me that is already real and is already true and uh I don't expect that it's something that you will necessarily understand or or feel great about um, in a day, but I would love it if you would consider it with an open mind and try to understand that I am coming from a place of like trust and wanting to be close. Um, and I hope you can hear those things in the spirit that I'm offering them to you. Um, I hope that does something to their hearts. And um, if not, 
just always like whenever you can try to break down your goals into the smallest possible sense. Like, is it to just not have another fight like that again for a while? Is it asking them to choose like a neutral initialism or nickname that they've maybe used for you historically? Is it just like looking for any LGBT centers in your area that like, again, this is what's just so hard that like that you can get to either on public transportation or that's mm-hmm. walkable without relying on them for driving you and where the like people who work there won't get in fucking trouble for trying to help you or talk to you. And that might be a tall order, but, and then also really focusing on your game plan for how do I make sure I have access to the documents I need when I turn 18? Because if, for example, you might want to apply for scholarships under your new name, um, you'll, you'll want to do everything that you can to try to change your name um, as, as, as soon as possible. You might want to apply for college under your new name. Um, and that might be a question for Again, like I'm just like a guidance counselor, maybe, but maybe they have to fucking rat you out. Right. It depends on what what state this letter writer lives in. And that's very, very sad and constantly changing at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. The geography of childhood is cruelty. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With that, I'll have you read our second letter. Okay. The second letter is called Big Deal, Small Talk. I live in a major city currently experiencing a tragic homelessness crisis and work in the field of ending homelessness. I care a lot about this, and a lot of my social life and extracurricular hobbies are also in mutual aid and advocacy work. I frequently talk to people with different viewpoints for work and understand how polarizing it can be, especially since many equate crime and substance abuse with homelessness and try to oppose building affordable housing or using our city's budget to fund services for the homeless. The conversations I have about these subjects at work tend to be direct and about specific issues. I feel comfortable in those settings and know that perfect unanimity isn't the goal. I feel less comfortable about these conversations in my personal life. My brother is getting married and has asked me to spend quite a bit of time at different social events leading up to the wedding, bridal shower, bachelorette party, engagement party, etc. He is not at all of these events, but asks me to attend and I want to support him. The people at these events use disparaging language to talk about people experiencing homelessness, make factually incorrect claims about our current homelessness crisis, and otherwise show disdain for a community I care about. To be clear, I don't initiate these conversations. They're just common topics of conversation in our city. How direct should I be in these settings? At one event, a man was citing incorrect statistics about housing. I corrected him and gently shared my thoughts, which he didn't like. Other times, I've excused myself from the conversation or tried to steer the subject elsewhere. I end up feeling bad that I failed to build a bridge or offer new insights into common misconceptions that might help good-hearted people see a new side of a pressing issue. I want to support my brother building a new family, and I don't want to rock the boat for him, and I also feel like I'm not being true to myself or my values. I respect your advice, and I've listened to you for years. Were you at all tempted to guess the city as I was? Yes. And I, I, I'm in Los Angeles right now. I don't live here. I live in New York, but I, I sort of assumed it was Los Angeles. That was what immediately popped into my head, but it really it could be so many places. Oh, that's, yeah, that is good. I had immediately gone to San Francisco. Um, oh, okay. Cause there's just like a long and rich history of being terrible about homelessness there, but it could just as easy, like, it's just that that's the West coast city I've probably lived in the longest. You could absolutely say Seattle. You could say Portland. You could take your pick. Yeah. I was just in Miami, and Miami is definitely experiencing 
uh, a similar crisis and it did come up in conversation a lot with people I was around. So it could be there. I just, oh, there's such a specific vibe to San Francisco's shittiness about uh, like homelessness that I, I, I don't want to get bogged down. I'm like, which city is it? So I can like judge people I don't right. know there. Like it's, right. I should let that go. But, you know, to me, it felt like, you know, the question here is fundamentally, how do I balance two of my ideals that are kind of in competition with one another. One is keeping conversation congenial and non-confrontational at bridal showers and engagement parties, especially with like potentially new sort of in-laws, which is, I think, a a reasonable goal. And the other is, you know, speaking honestly about an issue that's like important, uh, just like at a social level. And that's also deeply meaningful and personal to you uh, on a social and professional level. Um, I, I think those are both good ideals. Those are both good goals. Um, I think there will be times when they come into conflict with one another, but it seems to me at least like so far, the strategies the letter writer has been using, uh, have all been quite good, right? Like sometimes excusing herself, sometimes changing the subject, sometimes offering polite corrections when somebody is like in error. Um, and that, that struck me as, as a, pretty sound way of approaching it. Uh, Is there anything that you want to add either as like, here's an additional tactic you could use, or here's a way to sort of like always weigh those two ideals in front of you in the moment? You know, I, I, I can add some strategies that have worked for me because I, I did go through something very similar to this um, where you know, I, there are some people I have within my own family whose politics have drastically shifted in the past 10 years or so, including uh, an aunt who is a is a big QAnon follower. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm very lucky that it's only one person in my family who who has strayed that far. And I think for my family members and I, we each had to set our own boundaries and figure out what the line was where no matter what something needs to be said. And for me in the situation with this particular person, it, it was racism and sometimes it can be exhausting and also out of place, especially if you're at an event to correct every little thing. And so, you know, if, if my aunt was going on a tangent about Hunter Biden's laptop being in the hands of the Chinese and uh, <laughs> and us being uh, owned and all of these things that are going to happen, I, I didn't necessarily feel like I had to jump in. I could listen to that. But if it veered into targets on any specific community, that was that was my red line where I knew that I needed to say something. But then on the flip side, uh, my sister, and I hope that she doesn't get angry with me for talking about this, she got married a few years ago, and the family that she uh, that that are now her in laws, you know, they had very different political views than than me and and the rest of my family too. And I sort of set the same boundary when I was invited to their family gatherings. I, I didn't necessarily feel like I could sit at their Thanksgiving and correct everything that they said, even if I knew that it was, you know absolutely false and, you know, not based in any fact at all. But there were moments where I did feel like I, I had to step in and I had to say something. And, you know, where, where I feel like I've been very lucky is what I do as a comedian and what I do as a, a writer and a filmmaker is I get to hide the, the messages of, um, the things that I care about, I get to kind of hide that within comedy. And that has been really helpful for me to, to sometimes be able to approach these things comedically. But since everyone can't necessarily do that, and even sometimes it's not appropriate for me to do that, uh, I like to ask questions. And sometimes asking someone why they think something and you know, giving them a chance to try to articulate it, sometimes that helps them question. And that can be something that can help to build a bridge in a way that wouldn't be seen as aggressive as a bride at a bridal shower. 
Yeah, I think all that is is so important to bear in mind. Um, it does seem like the letter writer feels fairly assured when it comes to having these conversations, both in terms of like what to talk about, how to talk about it tone. So I'm not too worried about um, like trying to advise her on that front. It's more a question of like, how do I choose my moment and when? So I think letter writer, I would add to your roster of like the already good, you know, sometimes offer a polite correction. You know, in that particular case, you said like the guy either like bristled or like walked away or didn't like it. And like, that's a shame, but sometimes people react badly to polite pushback. Um, and so I don't think that's something where you ought not to have corrected him um, or like, you know, that was really bad form. I think he was being shitty about homeless people and then he was a little petulant when someone didn't immediately say, you brave genius being cruel to the homeless. No one's ever tried that before. <laughs> um, so I, I think you can acquit yourself there of his reaction. And it is also like part of what's difficult is like you're not even trying to bring this up, um, but people are just so vicious about anyone who is homeless that they will just like at a fucking bridal shower just bring up. And by the way, sometimes I have to see people who have lost their homes. This fills me with disgust and contempt. And I wish we could legislate them out of existence. And that does not speak well of those people. And I hope they fix their hearts or die, um, as the saying goes. Um, but yeah, balancing that that delicate walk of like, you don't have to put up with that kind of conversation and also trying to respect the fact that you are like at somebody's engagement party or at somebody's bridal shower. One additional thing, you might want to bring it up earlier. Uh, you know, you don't always have to wait for someone to say something shitty if this is happening a lot. You know, the next time you have to go to one of these, you can bring up your work um, and you can talk a little bit uh, about how important it is to you, what you value about it. Uh, maybe one or two common misconceptions that you've encountered a lot uh, among people about what people who experience homelessness like go through. Um, and that way you're a little bit preempting, like you're making it a little bit more difficult for somebody else to bring it up for the first time. And you're also kind of letting it be known, like I, I have a, a take here and I know a lot about it. Um, so if you would like to say something shitty about homeless people, you now know that, um, I will probably be able to correct you on matters of fact. Um, that's one thing that you could do. You know, the other thing there, I think that was slightly not quite stated outright, but was the sort of implication of like, I also don't really know how to handle what my brother is asking of me, which is like, he's sending me to some events that he's not going to. My my read there was like there's a handful of like women only events and he's not going on the basis of either his gender or of being the groom. But it could also potentially just be like he's making you go to some events that he doesn't want to go to. So maybe there's also a weird element of like, am I serving as like a representative of him in those moments? Do I maybe kind of resent him for throwing me into the deep end of these new people who I don't really know? Or do I mostly think it's fine? I just wish I had more clarity from him about how he wants me to handle it. So like maybe there's a question there of like, it would also be fine for you to only go to like four of these pre-wedding events, you know, like <laughs> if if you would like to say to your brother like, oh, I'm actually not going to be able to make the sixth one. Um, you don't necessarily even have to have like a big prolonged conversation about like his future cousin-in-law's views on the housing crisis. Um, you can also, you're being very supportive, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And if you wanted to do a little bit less, uh, you know, you don't have to go to more of the pre-wedding events than the actual groom does. Like that's a, that's a bridge too far. You know, I, that was something that I, you know, at first glance reading this letter thought, how many pre-wedding events are there? What kind of wedding is this? Is this like still the, in a pandemic? the wedding from, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That too. Is this the wedding from Bridesmaids? This feels, feels very extensive, but also I, I think that you brought up a great point with preemptively bringing it up, you know, especially since this is something that the letter writer is so passionate about and loves talking about. That yeah. why, you know, why not bring it up first if you if you're finding that it's coming up anyway? You know, I, mm -hmm. I think that that would be uh, a way to steer the conversation. And um, and, you know, hopefully if, if someone has a super shitty view of homeless people, they won't bring it up a half hour later. Yeah. And, and that way you can also maybe bring up like a, a win 
or or something good, something that people might not know. Beyond that, the only other thing that I would add is just port over a little bit more of your cheerful work perspective where you kind of expect plenty of continued conflict or pushback um, into a social setting, which is not to say like, oh, it's fine if a fight breaks out here, no big deal. Like obviously, again, you know, your speech here will have to be a little bit more, you know, carefully thought out, respectful, uh, you know, aware of the circumstances than it would be if you were just like having a conversation with a bunch of strangers at like a party at a friend's house. But to think like, I don't expect that anyone who felt really strongly that it's good uh, to be hostile towards homeless people um, is on the strength of even a very impressive conversation with me going to do a complete 180 within half an hour. That's not a realistic expectation. That does not happen. Um, So my expectation is not get someone to say, wow, you're right. I never thought about it like that. My expectation is to like state my case politely and respectfully make sure I don't get drawn into a fight, like find a polite way to exit if it becomes clear that we're not going to change each other's minds. Um, that is a goal that you can achieve um, and and gives you, I think, a good checklist for realizing like, oh, if this conversation is spinning out of control, I don't want a brawl to break out at this, um, you know, rehearsal dinner. So I'm going to say like, you know, this seems like it's getting really heated and I just would so much rather talk about the happy couple. Why don't we uh, let this one alone for a while? At most, you can plant a seed and hope for something to change in the future. And then, you know, to that end, you can also look not to convert like the most outspoken opponents. Often, you know, people want those because it feels like the biggest feather in your cap. But maybe like look for people who have seemed uncertain or uncomfortable when somebody else said something especially hostile towards homeless people. Look for the fence sitters. Um, Look for someone who seems open to hearing your perspective um, and talk a little bit with them rather than going for the person who's kind of loudly declaring themselves like anti-homeless people. That person is probably not going to be a super useful candidate, whereas you could potentially, you know, actually, you know, you mentioned the good-hearted people who maybe just haven't considered another perspective. Like, look for those people. The mm-hmm. the guy who was an asshole when you said, actually, that's not correct, he was not one of those good-hearted people who who have failed to see a new side. Um, leave him Leave him to the powers that be and, and, and move on for, for smoother waters. Beyond that, that's it. I don't think I would recommend like asking your brother for guidance on this front, just because I really don't think you need his permission to address any of this stuff. And I would not want you to invite him to weigh in on conversations he's not present for. Does that seem right to you? Like, I just, I, I don't think that would go very well or be necessary. Would you be at all inclined in this situation to talk to your brother and, and ask for his um, opinion? No, definitely not. I think that what you said before, the the letter writer seems to have really good strategies and seems to know where the line would be. And um, I, I don't think that the brother weighing in would be helpful. Let's take a break for a minute from talking about other people's problems. Um, how did how did these two letters compare to the the way that you solve other people's problems in the rest of your work? <laughs> um, I think that uh, both of these letter writers seem like really compassionate people who have um, who are uh, have a good handle of their own situation. And um, when I'm usually solving people's problems on set, it comes at a much more heightened emotional level <laughs> for very small problems. Mm-hmm. So uh, so I feel like that's the big difference here. And, uh, you know, I love to bring comedy and fun to any situation. So I hope that specifically the the second letter writer can attend some of these um family events and these pre-wedding events and find a way to have these discussions in a fun way if possible. Not, I mean, not that everyone finds a bridal shower to be fun. I really find, I find those events to be a little torturous sometimes, especially if I don't know the people. Oh, and especially when they open the gifts. I don't want to know that you got a toaster. I don't care about your Keurig. I don't need to see this. (laughs) I have not been to enough bridal showers to like have a really strong sense of what it, how I, I've only seen like one or two people receive a toaster. 
Um, so I have a general sense of what they're <laughs> like, but um, it is it is unusual. There are not many circumstances in life where you sit around and watch your friend open a lot of housewares, which I guess like absent the whole tie to a wedding, I would, if my friend just called and said like, I bought a bunch of housewares today. Do you want to see me open them? Like I might, I might want to see that, but um, it would depend on the housewares and it would depend on what else I had going on that day. It depends on the friend. Depends on the friend. Yeah. And their taste. <laughs> but you also um, have done a show for, uh, forgive me, is it the last four years in, in LA um, called Adult Sex Ed? Yeah. I actually hosted the show in New York and I just did the first performance of it in LA this weekend. Congratulations. I'm mixing up my cities. I have COVID right No. It was so much fun to do that show here. And um, I think that doing that show and, and, and basically what the show is, is um, I invite guest comedians to come on and talk about their experiences with adult sex ed. And, and then I teach quote unquote lessons, which are really comedy bits that have factual information in them throughout the show. And I was inspired to uh, start the show because my mother was a, a sex ed teacher and was very, very open. And we had great conversations at home and I had abstinence-only sex ed in school growing up. And I am able to see as an adult how both of those experiences impacted me. And the duality of that experience really wanted to make me start this show. And I love that I'm able to provide factual information for people and tell them about current events that maybe they don't know about or they're not thinking enough about and uh, and mask it with comedy. So then I, I assume if while you were growing up, you were getting abstinence-only education, your mother was not uh, a sex educator like at a school. There wasn't like a public school down the street where she was teaching at. Like she was an adult sex educator as well? No, she was a sex educator at a public school as well. But in New York, there's no mandated sex education. Really? So every school district is allowed to do what they want to do. And right now, there are only 29 states and uh, Washington, D.C. that mandate sex education. And there are only 18 states that require it to be medically accurate. Boy, I'd love to know what standards <laughs> those other 11 states have or if it's just like big question mark. It's, I mean, it's really, it's truly terrible. And, you know, I, I think sometimes it's predictable. Um, you know, where where we could prejudge and think about a state and be like, oh, of course they don't have sex ed. Um, but p most people are surprised that I grew up in New York and I had the experience that I did. Um, but New York is still a state that does not mandate sex education. It has it hasn't changed there. And, you know, every every school district is allowed to do um what they want. And of course I spent uh part of the show the other day talking about what's going on in Florida right now. Um and I, it seems like sex education is going to be a big part of the new culture war that we're going to be having. And it's going to be something that's going Welcome to be Welcome to the a, new a culture focus. war, same as the old culture war. <laughs> yeah, it's the same one. It's just, it's the update. Yeah, yeah. It's the revival. Yeah. Wow. Does your mother still work in the field? Um, no, my mother is a, I mean, she's still an educator. She is a, um, a school administrator at a special ed school. But she still, uh, you know, I I get to go and and witness the the work that she does uh, because she directs the school plays every year, and uh, I go to see those. And she's still facilitating great conversations between her students through the work that she does there, and it's it's really amazing. I had also noticed um, in in your sort of back catalog that you had done a sort of like happiest season two years before happiest season came out with Lesbom. And I was uh, wondering to what degree, like, I mean, not that you invented the idea of a lesbian brings her girlfriend home for a national holiday, uh, <laughs> but I was really struck by, oh my gosh, like it was like the, the lesbian version of Deep Impact and Armageddon coming out the same summer. Yeah. Uh, Lesbom is a, a film that came out in 2018. And what I love about that film is um, just like with with what I do, how I like to talk about things that that 
people don't necessarily have conversations about, and I like to mask it in comedy. I love that Les Bomb is a coming out story, but it's a Thanksgiving movie. So every year it finds a new audience. Every year it finds a new life. I love the week leading up to Thanksgiving. Um, you know, whatever platform it's on, it will will give it a push. And you know, receiving messages from people all over the world who are watching it and um, and you know, seeing themselves in that film, it's really it's really really fun. Plus, there's Cloris Leachman and Bruce Dern. I mean, and, the cast. and some really fun performances. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got a heavy bench in this movie or a deep bench. I don't know sports. I think it's deep bench is maybe the expression. A heavy bench. You have a bench a d- of some dimension. A- when you said deep bench, you sounded like a, a sports broadcaster to me. So I'm going to say that that's the, that's the term. Thank you. No one's ever said that to me. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely dead on about that. Like all of my biggest comings out uh, cause you know, I, I, I was like a boomerang. Like I had to come out to my family a bunch. They were the kind that was like, really? You sure? We, we forgot about that last one. Um, and Thanksgiving such a big one. Cause everyone's thinking like, well, I don't want to do it at Christmas. Like Christmas is too big. So I do think like pound for pound of the people who do choose to come out around like uh, a big holiday. I, I, I think Thanksgiving might be bigger than Christmas. So I, I think you have hit on a deep, like queer truth. Um, well, I, I executive produced that movie. I helped develop it from, from the first draft of the script. And, um, it's very much based on the, the real life of the writer, director, Jenna Lorenzo and, uh, and star. She's the star of Les Bomb as yeah, well. Sorry. I didn't mean to like give you sole credit. I don't want to no, offend no, no. the like director of this movie. <laughs> um, but, but it's, you know, it's such a great f- and fun film. Uh, to watch, and I'm I'm so glad that people watch it every year, and and the messages that we receive are are just great. That's fabulous. Is there anything else that you're working on right now that uh, you want people to know about? Any place that they can find you if they come away from this episode and think I want her to solve more of my problems? <laughs> well, yeah, I I love to meet new people, so please find me on on social media. I think right now I'm probably going to be using Instagram <laughs> more sure, than Twitter sure. <laughs> based on current events. Uh, so you could find me at Danny F. Leonard. And that's where I'll announce, you know, whatever upcoming shows I have for adult sex ed. I don't have the next one scheduled, but I can't wait to um, continue doing this show. I love it so much. And then um, I also have a, a new film that I produced that is out on VOD. It was just in theaters, but now it's it's only available on VOD, and it's called Coast, and it is a um, a female driven coming of age movie uh, with a really fantastic score and soundtrack um, because it's about a a sixteen year old girl named Abby and her life is thrown upside down when a traveling rock band gets stuck in her town. So it's got like real Empire Records vibes. Uh, if you are Just around important my vibes. age. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I love this movie so much. It's really, really fun. And it's not just the 16 year old who's coming of age. There are other characters in the movie who are finding their identities too. And so it's something that a lot of people can relate to. And, you know, I'm not 16 years old anymore, but I still watch this movie and it means something to me. So I, I hope it means something to you too. Oh, that's fabulous. All right. Well, I wonder if I could um, trespass on your kindliness a bit longer. I have an update sure. from a, a recent uh, letter writer that I'd like to read before we go. Um, so this one just says, update. You answered my question in a lightning round a few months ago. It was about how to, quote, prepare for dating. And I asked if there was some syllabus for being a responsible lesbian dater. I just wanted to say thank you to you and your guest for being kind about my question. That was the first time I'd cracked open the anxieties that I have about sex and dating and shared something about it with somebody else. Having you sort of validate my worry, but also gently tell me there's no way out of it, but through gave me the nudge I needed to start dealing with it in therapy. It took me until a few weeks ago to actually take the plunge and go on my first date. And guess what? It was bad. So boring. But I did it. And you were right. It wasn't that big a deal. I have another one on Sunday. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be okay. Thanks for your help. I love that one. That was so wonderful. Not least because that wonderful ending was just like, oh, it was bad. It was boring. And then I realized that's fine. 
Like, I'm just, I'm so pleased you got to encounter lesbian boredom, letter writer. Well, there is such a thing as straight boredom, too. And I think that's what I experience on a lot of dates. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> it's universal. Uh, but, oh, man, that's so wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. No, that that's like, there are certainly ways in which being a, a responsible lesbian dater <laughs> might look different from other types of dating. But certainly... I think one sort of universal factor is if your fear is just like, what do I do if it's not great right away, is to say, expect that a lot of it will be dull. Uh, not like that you can't look for ways to pursue excitement and and pleasure. You can. Um, but don't think of boredom as like this horrible sign that you've done something hideously wrong. Like that's just part of what happens when you're trying to meet a lot of new people. Not everyone's going to be to your liking. Anyways, it was wonderful to hear from you, Letter Writer. I'm so glad. I hope your second date went a little bit better, but if not, there's always the next one. And Danny, uh, great name, by the way. Love having another Danny wonderful. on the show. Thank you so, so much for taking <laughs> a little time to answer these questions with us. Yeah, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with a guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form, or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. There are a number of different possible backstories that could include varying degrees of like mental health issues, could include various like possible politicalizations against hand washing. Like some people, just as they've gotten really politically activated about the even idea of masking, also get really like, it's my God given right not to wash my hands and die of dysentery. And that's weird there's also you know like every couple of years like the usda will like do a you know a, a test where they're like we got a thousand people into a kitchen we told them all to like assemble a salad and make a turkey burger and then we watched to see if they washed their hands and like 10 percent of people actually washed their hands effectively to listen to the rest of that conversation join slate plus now at slate.com forward slash mood